Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. I'm Steve Wills, one of the hosts of the New Books in East Asian Studies series. My guest today is Chad Deal, an assistant professor of East Asian history at Loyola University, Maryland, and the author of Resurrecting Nagasaki, Reconstruction and the Formation of Atomic Narratives, published by Cornell University Press in 2018. Chad, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm really excited to be here and to talk with you about my book. Before we start talking about the book, could you just tell us a little bit about your background as a historian and the origins of this book project in particular? Yeah. Um, I started studying Japanese as an undergraduate at Montana State University, um, where I grew up. And um, my Japanese teacher at the time, Yukihara, encouraged me to go study abroad. So when I was studying abroad in Kumamoto as a junior, I decided to visit Nagasaki. It was, it was just a few hours away by bus. And when I was visiting Nagasaki, I had to go see the Atomic Bombing Museum. And when I was there at the museum, there was an exhibit all about uh, the Christians, and especially the Catholics of Nagasaki. And I was really interested in the history of that. So when I was leaving the <clears throat> museum, I stopped by the bookstore and picked up uh, a, a book in Japanese by an author named Nagai Takashi, um, who actually appears in my uh, my current book um, quite a bit. And I wanted to read it to practice my Japanese and to become more familiar with um, the experience of um, people who survived the atomic bombing. And uh, there's a chapter called Providence, um, as in God's providence. And in that chapter, Nagai Takashi uh, talks about how the atomic bombing of the Urakami region, uh, which is northern Nagasaki, where the Catholics, uh, the largest Catholic community was, he said that that region was chosen as, or was uh, destroyed by the atomic bomb uh, because it was chosen as a sacrifice on God's altar in order to end the Second World War. And when I read that, I thought my Japanese must be terrible uh, because how can anybody interpret such destruction in such a way? And so it led me to um, continue researching it once I went back to Montana State University and I wrote a senior thesis under uh, Brett Walker, also a Japanese historian. Um, and uh, Brett Walker actually encouraged me to continue doing the research on Nagasaki, which took me uh, back to Nagasaki on a um, 
Fulbright Graduating Research Fellowship to live in Nagasaki for one year. Um, and while I was there, I decided to uh, begin making a career out of this, and I applied to graduate school. Um, luckily got into Columbia, went to Columbia to work with Carol Gluck and developed this into a dissertation. Um, went back to Japan several times for uh, research and eventually completed my dissertation, and um, which was basically the first draft of this book, as it is for most people. Um, yeah, and then uh, it finally is out. So... And congratulations, and it's it's a real accomplishment. It's uh, it's incredible to to hear that this was something that was uh, so consistent for you, an interest that goes back to your undergraduate days, and you really followed right. it through. <laughs> right. Thanks. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way, but yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, I wonder if you could tell us also a little bit about the the main sources you relied on for this project. Yeah, sure. Um, so because this is the first. Um, or is for, to my knowledge, the first English language historical monograph on the atomic bombing of Nagasaki and its aftermath. Um, uh, I really um, wanted to look, or I was sort of forced to look outside of directly Nagasaki books. And um, so, um, yeah, sorry, Steve, I'm just going to start that part over. Cause um, yeah, no problem. I had a total brain fart, but pretend I just asked the question again. Oh yeah. Yeah, so the um, so the material for this book, um, I wanted the book to be largely primary source driven uh, for a number of reasons. But um, well, I mean, one reason is that I just I um, just came across such abundant archives uh, in Nagasaki and elsewhere. And I, um, for example, I uh, out of the you know thousands and thousands of um, uh, photographs that I took of the sources, I've only been able to use a fraction of a percentage. So. Um, I really wanted to make those sources drive the book. Uh, another reason the book is so primary source driven um, is that, um, to my knowledge, m my book is one of the first, or if not the first, English language historical monograph on Nagasaki and its aftermath. So um, I didn't have a lot of um, um, peer monographs to draw from or to to, to speak with. Um, there are a lot of books on Hiroshima, obviously, and I. I bring that up as an issue in my introduction, but I felt like whenever I wanted to engage in those books, they were pulling me in directions I didn't want to go. Um, and so when I do use sec uh, secondary source material, it's uh, largely outside of the field of Japanese studies. Um, I do some urban history. Um, there are some memory studies um, authors in there. Um, but again, the book is largely primary source driven. And um Oh, go ahead. Did you have a question? Yeah, sure. I was just wondering, can you tell us about some of the archives that you visited and what kind of collections you were dealing with? Yeah, there was one archive in particular, which um, probably the bulk of my primary sources come from. Um, and that was the archival room of the, um, the Nagasaki City Nagai Takashi Memorial Museum. Um, and it is, um, it's, it's a museum dedicated to the memory of Nagai Takashi, whom I mentioned before, and it's run currently by his grandson, um, Tokusaburo. And when I was doing research in Nagasaki on the Fulbright Graduating Senior Fellowship, I um, I, I met Tokusaburo and I visited the museum many, many times, but I wasn't given access to the archival room. He keeps it um, closed, so it's not open to the public at any time. And that was in 2003, 2004. And then when I 
went back for my my dissertation research in Tokyo. I visited Nagasaki a few times and I think it must have been early 2008. So um, he, uh, uh, Nagai's grandson, Tokusabado, asked me if there were any primary sources, archival material that I would like to see. And my eyes just sort of got really big and I was like, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, sure. and so um, we scheduled a time and he just opened the door to the archives and just let me look at anything I wanted. And there were just shelves and shelves of, of correspondence and newspaper clippings and art and um, manuscripts of uh, Spanish translations of books that were never published and just a really rich archive. And so I just spent as much time as I could photographing all of this material. And um, um, so that's the majority of the primary source material. Yeah. So, so after, after five years, you finally gained access to the treasured archive. (laughs) Exactly. And I was very patient. But he was really generous in letting me see anything I wanted. Um, and and I, I should probably explain why that is, is that, um, and maybe this will come out in our discussion later, but Nagai Takashi is a pretty controversial figure within Japan in terms of the way he um, interpreted the atomic bombing as, you know, um, a gift from God. And so um, some scholars have criticized him um, pretty brutally. And so um, his grandson now sort of tries to, um, at least avoid that as much as possible. And so once once he realized that I was going to um, take an objective look at the post-war history of Nagasaki, I think he, you know, not that he told me I couldn't criticize him, and I do in certain ways, but I think he felt like I was going to give the history a fair shake. And so I think I just gained his trust after five so years. So you just, yeah, you proved yourself <laughs> after a while. Yeah. Well, I just want to say that your immersion in a really wide variety of rich primary sources, it just comes through on every page of the book. And it's uh, it's one of the real pleasures of reading it. Thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. And that. I think that's probably a, a good segue to talking about the book itself. Sure. So <laughs> I thought we might as well start logically enough with the introduction and I'd like to commend you, first of all, on your poetic, creative titles for every chapter. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, and I yeah. want to just riff off of the title of the introduction just for a second. The sure. introduction yeah. is uh, called Valley of Visions. And uh, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but the way I interpreted the title was uh, the idea that there are, you know, within the valley there, there are many different <laughs> conflicting visions of what a, a post-war post-bombing Nagasaki should look like, how the city's identity should be defined, um, and of course, how the city should commemorate the bombing and and its aftermath. Um, And if that's not a complete misreading there, I wonder if you could sort of talk about, you know, who were the different groups that that held those visions and, um, you know, that had the most significant influence on that reconstruction discourse? Yeah, sure. And that's exactly um, what I meant by it. So I'm just glad that it was read that way. Uh, Yeah, there were, um, I would say there were four main groups of people that are at the center of the book. Um, Firstly, the the city officials, um, including the mayor, or actually I discussed several of the mayors, uh, city council members, um, um, other city officials who work for like the Nagasaki city construction office and other things like that. So that's, that's one of the main uh, groups and they're the, uh, the main focus of chapter one. 
although all of my groups appear in all the chapters, um, but the main focus of chapter one are these municipal officials. Uh, secondly, um, the Catholic community of the Urakami region of Nagasaki. And um, so Urakami was ground zero of the atomic bombing. And this is where the largest uh, community of Catholics resided. And uh, they become a major voice um, during this reconstruction period. Uh, and some of the individuals I discuss um, within that community are, of course, Nagai Takashi, whom I've mentioned, and also um, Bishop, uh, Bishop and eventually Archbishop um, uh, Yamaguchi Aijiro. And there are other Catholics I discuss throughout. Um, they're the main subject of chapter three, really, and that's chapter that's the chapter on Nagatakashi and his works and the Catholic community's influence on the image of Nagasaki, post-atomic Nagasaki. Um, um, and then one of the other major groups is the survivors uh, of the atomic bombing, and I focus mostly on the survivor activist groups. Um, and uh, the survivors today are generally uh, referred to in Japanese with the word hibakusha, but the hibakusha term itself is um, was um, or came about in the late 1950s as a legal designation for survivors um, for the purposes of um, compensation and uh, medical relief, um, help with um, um, paying medical costs and things like that. Um, and in order to qualify as a legal hibakusha, you had to submit an application and get a booklet. And this will evolve slowly over the decades after 1957. Um, but so my use of the term hibakusha, which I use quite a bit in the book, I do explain my usage of it, but um, it is a bit anachronistic to refer to the immediate post-war survivors with the term hibakusha. Um, they, there were a lot of other terms used to refer to um, the survivors, like seizonsha, uh, higaisha, uh, senseisha, etc. But um, but the, the, as a group, I look at mostly the the activist groups that were driven by the survivors. Um, and they are the main subject of um, chapter five. Um, but of course they appear throughout the entire book. And I should also say that um, all of the groups of people that I've just mentioned, the city officials and the Urakami Catholics, most of them are also survivors of the atomic bombing, but they had different, but the survivor activists had different, um, different, a different vision of post-atomic Nagasaki, um, which we might be able to, talk about later. And lastly, the last major group that I discuss in the book, um, or at least until 1952, um, is the presence of U.S. occupation personnel. And there's sort of two groups within that category. One is the uh, occupation officials of uh, within Nagasaki, the Nagasaki military government team. And, um, and then there's the that's they're the main subject of chapter two uh and then chapter four deals with the censorship apparatus um and sort of the censorship aspect of of the u.s occupation uh so those are the four main groups and they appear again throughout the whole sure it's it's so interesting to see the different groups sort of vying with each other for uh, influence over this very complicated reconstruction process and uh and i really appreciate your point that it's a misconception to treat them as discrete groups because there's so much overlap and uh, that's a that's a a good point to keep in mind throughout the book um of course another focal point of the introduction is where you draw a contrast between hiroshima and nagasaki and that's a, a 
recurring theme throughout the book as well. Um, and you know, it's it's startling to think that this really is uh, one of, if not the first, uh, you know, book length English language study of uh, Nagasaki post-war, post-atomic reconstruction. So, of course, we're grateful to you for this this contribution. But I wonder uh, what you would have to say about what we have missed out until now because of this tendency to overlook Nagasaki. Right. Um, I, I guess I should start by saying there have been other books about um, post-war Nagasaki, but they're um, more of like journalistic accounts and they generally follow the same format where they uh, follow a few or five of the survivors and they they weave their stories throughout some of the history. Um, but what I'm trying to do is take, um, you know, like a, an analytical approach to understanding the reconstruction. What can it tell us about uh, uh post-war history of Nagasaki, especially compared to Hiroshima. And I think, um, I guess, um, um, so one of the, one of the um, reasons I originally chose um, to focus so much on Nagasaki um, was that I, I, I kept asking myself, you know, why, oops, Sorry, I'm just gonna okay, take a that's quick fine. mental that's break. Um, yeah, yeah. Is maybe I can delete that. <laughs> yeah. What, what so, was the last part of the so question what, again? Before what we're I missing off? out on, yeah. like what's? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. On yeah. by not focusing. Yeah. Um, um, um. I forgot what my. What, what did I just finish saying? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry, okay. my brain is so fried. Um. Oh yeah. yeah. The, the there yeah. are the other books on Nagasaki. Um. Okay. Um. But then when I looked beyond these um, journalistic accounts, there were no books that really uh, interrogated the um, aftermath of the Nagasaki atomic bombing from a historical analytical perspective. And um, and all the books that dealt with the atomic bombings, um, you know, in, in, in a, all um, fields that I could find, um, all the books that dealt with the atomic bombings from an analytical perspective um, focused primarily on Hiroshima, even if they said that they focused on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the atomic bombings, plural, they usually would just use Hiroshima as an example of uh, of something that could be applied to both cities. And, and I didn't feel like um, that was really satisfying enough. Um, but I guess the question that sort of drove me was, why is it that Hiroshima is so much focused on and Nagasaki is not. And that was actually a question during my first year of graduate school, which really set me off on my research was trying to answer that question. And I, I realized that it could only be found in this early post-war reconstruction period and how the two cities reconstructed. Um, and so by doing that, I found there, I realized that, you know, the focus on Hiroshima really prevents us from understanding the full history as much as possible of the atomic bombings because it really is only one half of the story. Uh, there were two cities destroyed by atomic bombings. And the main thing to remember is that Nagasaki's response to their atomic bombing was significantly different from Hiroshima's response. And if you don't ever look at Nagasaki separately from Hiroshima, you'll, you'll miss that is sort of what I was uh, realizing through my research. And so, um, that's just sure. one no, that's, your question, I that's guess. That's so interesting. Um, so just, if I'm understanding yeah. 
it's not that it's a, it's a mere oversight that Nagasaki has tended to be left out, but it's actually, it's connected to the history of the reconstruction itself in that the, especially the municipal leaders that you write about in the first chapter make this conscious decision to suppress the memory as much as possible in contrast to Hiroshima's decision to sort of foreground its status as an atomic bomb city. Right. Right. And I think, um, so, um, um, sorry, Steve, it'll come back to me in just a second. Um, cause I really like your comment there. Um, yeah, it was really, um, um, yeah, it wasn't, it was never, you know, satisfying for me to answer the question, why is Hiroshima so much, um, more studied? Um, it was never satisfying for me to answer, oh, because it was the first atomic bombing. It, it really did go back to this early reconstruction, Harry, uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, it really did go back to the early reconstruction period, um, where you had the two cities embracing different paths of reconstruction. So, um, uh, Hiroshima did make the atomic bombing the central part of its urban identity, which um, they were very good at promoting themselves as the the atomic bomb city. Whereas you have Nagasaki, on the other hand, um, choosing a very different path of reconstruction, where they uh, they chose to revive their historical past as um, their their international past as a you know um, this international port city, and so they really branded themselves. Um, or brand themselves as an international history rather than simply an atomic bomb city. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go too far and say that. And I, I, I try to be really careful about how I phrase this in the book, but so the municipal officials did promote the, that historical urban identity of the city over their present, um, situation, which was, you know, um, immediate, um, aftermath of atomic destruction. But, um, they they did. They couldn't completely ignore the fact that they had been destroyed by an atomic bomb, and it would have to fit somewhere in their narrative. And so they, they do, um, you know, um, promote um, to some degree the um, the atomic bombed identity of their city as well, but only insofar as it sort of complements their own. Sure. Well, that's a perfect segue into talking about the first chapter uh, where you you talk about what you call the municipal vision of reconstruction. Uh, that's really the, the sort of vision for the city's post-bombing identity and, and future that's uh, most actively promoted by the, the various city officials that you were mentioning before. So how would you describe the sort of basic outlines of that vision? What did they what did they foresee? What were they trying to create? Right. So in a way you can say that the response of the municipal officials to the destruction was quite natural. You want to rebuild what was lost. Uh, and so that's exactly what they set out to do is to design reconstruction plans and, and you know, um, um, that revived their past history, um, a, a, a history that they felt they could be uh proud of, uh, especially in the immediate post-war period when they couldn't, um, sort of play up a, um, you know, a lot of the immediate, um, the immediate history of the city as, um, a site of Mitsubishi shipbuilding that built, um, the battleship Musashi and things like that. Um, and so they went back farther and said, you know, what sort of history can we really, um, 
emphasize in our reconstruction. And so they went, you know, back, you know, hundreds of years. And, and so their main vision of reconstruction was to, you know, cultivate an urban identity of the city based on their uh, past um, as an international trading port. Um, and um, you had a, um, I, I call it the municipal vision of reconstruction because it was really the, mis- the municipal officials who um, drove this vision, but it was promoted not only by mayor, by mayors and other officials, but also by um, representatives of the city, like Nagai Takashi, who was Catholic, um, and even the U.S. occupation in Nagasaki, the Nagasaki uh, military government team, they also promoted this image of Nagasaki and this vision of reconstruction. So, um, so it wasn't it wasn't yeah, one group that had a monopoly ahead, yeah. on on this particular vision, which which makes sense. Right. How successful would you say the champions of this municipal vision were over the long term? Yeah. Um, sorry. <clears throat> yeah. How successful were they? Um, well, I guess I spend the rest of the book. So the first chapter is, you know, sort of defines this vision and the main players in it. And then I spend the rest of the book sort of showing how that unfolded over the following years and decades and how it influenced um, the urban identity of the city. And we see that, you know, when, when my book ends in the late 1950s, um, in chapter six, we see how it's, um, it's, it's affecting to the land, affecting the, um, um, architectural landscape of the city to the detriment of the collective memory of the, um, the atomic bombing survivors. And so, um, I'd say in that sense, you know, they're, they're continuing to have success. And then, but of course it's um, a, it's a success that's, the, uh, we have to qualify in the way we conceive of it as success because it's, right. it involves stamping out other people's <laughs> priorities and interests. Yeah. And, and, and I should, you know, add that, um, um, the meaning of this, um, municipal vision, um, to construct this city of international culture. The term that they use in Japanese is kokusai which, you know, can literally mean um, international culture city or international city of culture. But they, uh, the municipal officials, as I talk about in chapter six, were able to, um, you know, add nuance to that definition to, instead of putting focus on um, international culture, they, um, they put the focus on international city. And so they wanted to, or they redefined their own vision to suit the needs of the late 1950s, which by then they wanted to be an international city, which for them meant, uh, and I know I'm getting ahead of us, but um, by that time it meant, you know, having a clean urban landscape free of ruins of war or anything like that. And so the atomic bombing ruins no longer fit their municipal vision, which they had at first. um, Because even though I know I spent a lot of time saying, you know, the, they were trying to um, overwrite um, the immediate memory of the atomic bombings, they, they, did still see the importance of commemorating the atomic bombing um, uh, to a limited degree. And so they would preserve certain ruins like the cathedral ruins, a uh, subject of chapter six. But once the municipal vision sort of evolves, um, or I guess uh, the meaning of what that vision entailed, um, once that evolves, then um, other narratives sort of um, um, I still have a brain fart. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, 
but once that uh, once that vision of reconstruction evolves, then um, yeah, the other groups sort of um, lose their voice. So it's it's not it's not to say that this municipal vision is uh, necessarily um, hegemonic or you know eliminates all other voices, because as you right. discuss in detail throughout the book. Uh, this municipal vision seems to sort of set the parameters and it sort of sets the tone of the discussion. Right. It's, it's what the the different activists and different groups have to sort of uh, resist right. or, or try to work within. Yeah, absolutely. And you put that much better than I could. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it's so interesting. You, you mentioned the sort of ambiguities of this, this term, the, the koksai bunka toshi and, and how it can even be because of the sort of, you know, flexibility of, of Japanese grammar, how it can even be translated in English in, yeah, in ways that exactly. have serious differences. Yeah. You have this great, I uh, love your sort of epigraphs too. the, one quote from a city construction office chief, uh, I can't even comprehend what the devil is meant by international cultural city. So, Yeah, that was one of the problems immediately uh, after they got the, the official go-ahead from Tokyo to have a reconstruction law officially named the Koksai Bunkotoshi Kensetsuho. Uh, some people were like, wait, what does that even mean? Uh, <laughs> because that, I, that, that, A, that wasn't the plan, but B, and I mentioned this in the book, is uh, some city officials looked. They were like, I looked up Koksai Bunka in the dictionary and I or the uh, encyclopedia and I found nothing. <laughs> uh-huh. so, yeah, right. there's a lot of confusion yeah. immediately after, but they just sort of, you know, um, went with it. So sure, sure. And then in, in decades to come, they ended up yeah. sort of ad hoc defining what yeah. that term would ultimately mean. And right. now we're we're left with this idea of an international and cultural city, of which Nagasaki may be just one example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I I like how you you mentioned earlier that it was it was really this vision of reconstruction um defined officially from 1949 as the the international cultural city uh, vision um it it really dominated the discussion and became became the framework within which all the other narratives had to operate. All the other voices had to um you know, participate in the discourse, whether or not they liked it or not, or whether they liked it or not. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Well, uh, it's a fascinating topic. And of course, you know, we have to keep in mind that uh, any discourse that's taking place in the late 1940s in Japan, or uh, as you said, up until 1952, it's those discourses are all taking place in the context of the post-war occupation. Yeah, and yeah. you shift to, to that topic mainly in the, in the second chapter. And then, right comes back again and later. And so maybe we can kind of combine our discussion uh, of the two here. But how would you, you mentioned earlier, the sort of local occupation authorities. There's a, a Colonel Victor Del Nor, for example, who takes yeah. on a, a really prominent role. How would you characterize their influence? What were their objectives, methods, and right. so on? Um, yeah, so uh, Victor Del Nor, um, uh, this is an interesting story because um, so he was um, the head of the occupation in Nagasaki for a couple of years, um, and he has had the the most impact um, um, in this. Or um, sorry, let me start that part over. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Victor Delnor um, is a really interesting story um, for a few reasons, but. Um, so he was the head of the occupation in Nagasaki for a couple of years, uh, but he's had a long lasting impact, 
um, on the city. They recently, I think it was a couple of years ago, um, finally named a street after him called mm. uh, Derenawadori. <laughs> and uh, they actually initially wanted to name the street after him when he was still there or, or uh, when he was about to leave. But he's very beloved in the city and he still is to this day. And he only appears a little bit in the chapter. I, I mean, I drop his name a lot, but his story only appears a couple pages in the chapter, I think. And it's it was really unfortunate because this is one of those things where you're you know, you're working with deadlines uh, with the publisher and you come across archives that you're, um, you know, you unfortunately can't use. And so the, the um, Gordon Prang collection at University of Maryland, um, one of the best sources on uh, the occupation of Japan, um, they, they, um, Victor Delnor's daughter donated a lot of his material from his time in the city. And I was told about it right before I was completing the revisions for the book <laughs> and so when i looked at as much as possible and it was just so much material and it was mm. so rich that i just i just couldn't really put it in the book so i put as much as i could in the book and a lot of the photographs from his time there are from this collection um but um but by and large he's he's so beloved because he was so supportive of the city's reconstruction and i think you know i don't think this is you know um an odd case or anything but um so the occupation of the city, like it was throughout Japan, was really there to, you know, well, they're there as a military occupa- military occupation, but they're also there to help Japan physically rebuild. And so that's what the occupation in Nagasaki did. Um, and um, um, but when it came to supporting the official path of reconstruction, they were right there with the city officials. And so they were one of the biggest um, supporters of this, what I call the municipal vision of reconstruction. Um, and I have a really fun picture in the book of um, Victor Delnor and um, at a um, cocktail party with a bunch of the city and prefectural officials and they're just having a great time. But I just sort of put that in there to really capture the mood of um, what it was like um, between the two. Um, yeah, you can really two, tell uh, in your discussion that there tended to be a, a really constructive relationship between the occupation authorities and the Nagasaki officials uh, overall. When when did they come into conflict? What, where, where were some of the areas where they maybe disagreed with each other? Is, is, this, um, is this meant to move into chapter four kind of? Well, I mean, we could do that. Um, yeah. Because it is, like, I'm, I'm trying to think of. I just wonder because we um, we have to assume that the occupation officials didn't have uh, exactly the same priorities right. and objectives as the municipal uh, authorities did, and I just wonder. It seems that in general they were pretty simpatico, but were there times when there were particular sort of hot button issues where? suddenly that constructive relationship became a little bit more tense or. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, um, I think um, once another group of um, American personnel came into the city, they actually came into both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but the, um, the atomic bombing casualty commission, um, um, once they, 
Yeah, I think I'm getting too sidetracked on that. Okay. Um, I think I know what you're asking. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Stevie, I don't think I can answer that very well. Okay, that's yeah, okay. We'll have to eliminate that. Yeah, that's that. okay. Let, let me, Sorry. no, let me, um, uh, let's just take a I, I, I could say something because I was thinking of, you know, there's an area where you think they would not agree, but mm-hmm. the, on the local level, um, the the Nagasaki military government team was actually very supportive of survivors publishing mm-hmm. when the national um, national allied government was not. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay, so maybe it's the best way to talk about this is is bringing in some of the stuff from chapter four about the censorship yeah. and things like that. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so let me let's just see. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off so in general it sounds like there was a really constructive open relationship between the local officials of uh, scap and the municipal officials who were mainly pushing for that uh, particular vision of reconstruction that you mentioned in the beginning and maybe we can start to see some of the areas where uh, they didn't always uh, agree or where they sometimes came into conflict in some of the material you discussed in chapter four, where in particular you talk about yeah. the, the publishing industry and the role that mm-hmm. the, uh, the occupation played in uh, shaping what was an, considered an acceptable narrative of the, uh, of the bombing. Yeah, right. And that's, you know, this, you know, I, I kind of talk about, um, this group of American occupation personnel um, as um, taking a very different approach to interacting with the people from Nagasaki. And um, interestingly enough, the, the officials in Nagasaki, so the American officials, so uh, Victor Delnor and other officials were actually very supportive of survivors um publishing their accounts and so they'd write them letters of support to the censors to try to get them published and it didn't always work and um they uh, victor delnor especially you know in his letters of support he would say you know these stories essentially these stories of atomic destruction are really crucial for our own understanding in this new nuclear age etc uh, but when it came to the national level um at least the um the american occupation government in tokyo they had a very different view of that and there you know there are some really good books on on censorship um, during the Allied occupation. Um, and there's one good, really good book of censorship of the atomic bombings uh, specifically. But um, yeah, this was, you know, the survivors of both Nagasaki and Hiroshima met with a lot of pushback um, and censorship from, uh, from the American occupation. Um, and this is something I try to um, argue in chapter four was that it wasn't so much a complete blanket censorship of, 
uh, everything uh, and anything to do with the atomic bombings, but it, you know, it, the, the, the content was important, but also whether the publication was meant for local consumption or national consumption was also a, a factor in this. So you do see a, a lot of local books that deal in some way with the atomic bombings being published with quite ease, especially from 1947. Um, but if they're intended for national readership, then um, the censorship was much more um, intense. Yeah. Um, One of the really interesting parts of chapter four is you have the the different sort of uh, memos and, and uh, communiques between different occupation censorship officials, sort of one approving a text and another yeah. disagreeing. And the sort of back and forth that you trace in that chapter is, is so interesting to read. There's not a there's not a sort of single occupation view yeah. of what's a considered an acceptable narrative. Yeah, exactly, and I think that was something John Dower called a phantom bureaucracy. It was, uh, you know, a, a lot of these censors weren't on the same page. Uh, like you mentioned, one censor could be like, "Wow, this is good. There's nothing objectionable, uh, ob- objectionable," and then the next one would be like, "Are you crazy? This is this is terrible. We 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 can't publish this." But um, um, but. And one of the things I I discuss in that chapter is that the the censorship apparatus evolves throughout the occupation. The su- the subject of censorship evolves. The methods evolve. Um, um, yeah. So it's um, I, I I just really tried in that chapter to complicate our understanding of occupation period censorship, especially as it dealt with the atomic bombings, but also in general. Yeah. And um, one of the yeah. sort of specific case studies that you bring in in that chapter, and in a way this is putting the cart before the horse, is uh, one of the most representative texts associated with uh, the author Nagai Takashi, uh, you discussed in the, in the previous chapter, and we'll come back to him in, in just a second. But while we're on this topic of, of censorship, um, how did the ultimately the Bell of Nagasaki is uh, approved and, and ends up having a uh, quite an influence on you know, our understanding of uh, the bombing. Uh, mm-hmm. But how would you say the occupation officials uh, shaped the, the final product of the Bell of Nagasaki? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, one of the things uh, I mentioned about censorship in general, and a lot of other scholars have discussed this, but um, how censorship causes uh, people to create things they otherwise would not have created and so um, you see this with the final product of um, the Bell of Nagasaki. Um, and I should probably say something about, uh, I keep saying uh, singular Bell of Nagasaki. Um, yeah, the original title Nagasaki no Kane is in reference to a, to a single bell. So it's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. plural, like it's sure. generally translated. But at any rate, so the final product, um, so, the, so in uh, 1948, when the censors were discussing things, it went all the way up to... Um, General Willoughby, um, and he decided, well, firstly, um, the official decision was to just hold on to the book, not outright um, ban it from being published, but to just hold on to it until a decision could be made, which was the first case of, which is in itself a form of censorship. But um, And as one of the censors were counted um, uh, in this documentary film I, I watched was that he said that he thought it was pretty slick. Uh, that's his words <laughs> because they had never done that before just hold on to it um and so when they eventually did say that it could be published they said it could only be published if they had, if nagai takashi and his publisher agreed to add an appendix um describing the it was actually an official military re- report 
um, about the Japanese atrocities um, in the Philippines, um, in Manila. And at first there was some pushback from the guy and his publisher, but they um, acquiesced and they um, agreed to the appendix. Um, so in that sense, uh, they affected the, the final product um, in the hope that, you know, showing Japanese atrocities during World War II would justify in some way the atomic mm-hmm. bombings in general, but it sort of has the opposite effect of other people have pointed out as well is that they're equating, you know, Japanese atrocities uh, in the atomic bombings. Mm. And so, you know, now, you know, after the book was published, they were like, <laughs> oh, shoot, now people are going to, you know, feel justified in saying the atomic bombings were um, right. atrocities. So it ends up cutting both ways. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, exactly. Well, you know, uh, uh, that's a, a fascinating subject and it's probably a, a good uh, time to shift the focus back to the author himself, Nagai Takashi, the, the saint of Urakami, uh, who plays such a, a central role in this, in this whole discourse and is such a, a striking character. Can you tell us a little bit about his background and, and his sort of important contributions to this discourse? Yeah, sure. Um, he was born in 1908 in uh, Shimane Prefecture, so he was not a Nagasaki native. Uh, he moved there to attend... Um, medical school, and he encountered Christi- or Catholicism when when he moved to Nagasaki University. Uh, sorry, to Nagasaki to attend medical school, because the medical school was right in the Urakami Valley, and he got to know some of the locals, um, and especially he got to know the Moriyama family really well, and they were descendants of the hidden Christians, and and so, and I think he actually lived with them at one point um, before he converted, but he eventually. Um, um, oh, he became an, um, an army medic and went abroad, um, after the Manchurian incident. And then again, after the outbreak of the second Sino-Japanese war in 1937, um, and when he was abroad, the daughter of the Moriyama family, Midori, who eventually will be his wife, um, uh, um, sent him a lot of Catholic texts and he sort of got really interested in Catholicism. And when he came back, um, uh, this is after the Manchurian incident. So before the outbreak of total war, he, uh, he came back and he converted to Christianity, uh, Catholicism. And then, um, and then, but this will end up. So his, his experience abroad um, during the conflicts. And then especially during the second Sino-Japanese war, he'll be abroad in uh, Northeastern China um, as an army medic. And he'll read these texts and, watching all this death and destruction on the battlefield and reading his Catholic texts, he starts thinking deeply about, you know, the meaning of, you know, death and things like that. And this is where he starts first forming uh, this idea that, you know, all death is due to the will of God and which he'll eventually, as I already talked about, he'll eventually apply that to the whole, um, uh, to the whole destruction of, of, of Nagasaki. But, um, so after, so he was in Nagasaki when when the U.S. dropped the bomb on on the city in 1945, and his wife was killed immediately. Um, his, his children survived. Um, he, in the months after the bombing, um, um, he 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 was already a leader in the Catholic community as like he was a parishioner representative, and and he was really um a voice that the Catholic community really listened to. And so after the bombing, they looked to him for 
support, like moral and spiritual support, because they were really questioning their faith in God. And, and you know, and they're, you know, how could, you know, you know, how could mm. their loved ones be killed and they were remained alive. So a lot of um, survivor guilt and things like that. Um, and so they looked to him for an answer. You know, how do you explain this horrible destruction that was dealt upon us? And there were some other issues that I mentioned in the book, like other parts of Nagasaki were saying that the uh, Catholics had been destroyed because they were sinners and, um, or they didn't pay, they, they they didn't come visit the Shinto shrines and they were being punished by God. And so he, you know, he took his understanding of death and destruction and applied it to the entire atomic bombing as sort of this moral, or sorry, this uh, moral and spiritual mm-hmm. support mechanism for his uh, community. And so he said, no, no, it's not divine punishment. It's divine providence. You know, God chose us because he loves us. We're sacrificial lambs on the altar to end the second world war. Um, yeah. And so that idea, you know, just to jump into chapter four again, um, the censors really like that um, because it sort of took the responsibility of the atomic bombing out of the hands of the U S and put it in the hands of God. Um, you know, oh, it wasn't us. <laughs> so yeah, that's sort of how he came to say what he did. And he died a few years later in 1951 um, from leukemia, which he had contracted before the atomic bombing. He was a radiologist. And during world war two, uh, they were short on, x-ray film so he had to give x-rays to his patients just turn on the machine and then Mm -hmm. like diagnose so uh see he was exposed to a lot of x-rays and he ended up contracting leukemia um and that's what he died of so it didn't have it it wasn't actually due to the atomic that's he's such a a fascinating and, and and rich character and and obviously as you were just describing his interpretation of the bombing as this providential act by God that elevates the the suffering of the uh, of the survivors and and the the loss of of their loved ones to a sort of you know cosmic relevance. You can see the kind of uh, comfort that that particular narrative would provide, and it's also, of course, uh, clear how it was uh, after being manipulated and, and shaped in certain ways, also quite appealing to the occupation officials. And, and yet, as you were mentioning when you were talking about the archives that you accessed, Nagai's memory is not without complication today. And he's not, uh, not maybe it sounds yeah. like not everybody would recognize him as the, the sort of saint-like figure that he might represent to others. So, you know, what are some of the um, areas where people have disagreed with him? What's his status today, for example, in uh, the collective memory of Nagasaki? Right. So, yeah, he's still a major figure um, in Nagasaki. Like, um um, and bookstores, sometimes there are complete book, uh, bookshelves with just his books. And, um, yeah, he's still very, um, highly regarded. And that has to do with sort of the last part of chapter three, where I talk about his contributions to reconstruction. So he was a very well published during the occupation for all the reasons I get into in the book, but, you know, partly because he was very appealing to these censors, but for many other reasons. And he used, um, most of his royalties to help, to help the city, rebuild physically, um, made a lot of investments in the city. And so that hasn't been forgotten, but when it comes to, you know, and that's that aspect of his, um, you know, of his life, um, still really, uh, still very much in high regard, but, 
uh, as is sort of his interpretation of the bombing among some in the Catholic community. And I should say, you know, after he said this, um, that became sort of the official stance of the Catholic community, but that didn't mean everyone was on the same page. And there were a lot of critics even within the Catholic community. And one of them I talk about in the book, Akizuki Tatsuichiro, um, he was a Catholic and he was just like, I just can't, I, I, just, I just can't abide. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and then other, you know, less influential, um, you know, Catholic survivors, um, they didn't know what to make of it, but they thought, okay, well, you know, this is Nagai Takashi. He's our representative. I guess I don't feel right about this, but I guess I have to go along with it. And and I, I don't include this in the book because I found it <laughs> later, but uh, I don't think I do anyway. Um, where some, um, it wasn't until after, um, the Pope in the early 1980s, I think he made an official statement because he kept being asked about this. Like, what do you think about this? Is this the work of God? You know, the atomic bombing. And, you know, he never directly criticized Nagai Takashi. And in fact, the Popes, uh, during the immediate post-war period, you know, um, admired Nagai Takashi and sent him, you know, sent him a rosary and letters and things like that. And so they were communicating, but in the 1980s, um, and the, um, um, uh, uh, the, um, the Pope in the early 1980s said, um, that, and th- this is sort of an indirect criticism of Nagai, but he said, um, war is the work of man, not God. And when he said that, um, some of the Catholic Hibaksha, the Catholic survivors who were still alive said that they felt a, a sigh of relief because they didn't have to think that God had wished mm-hmm. this destruction upon them kind of thing. So, so yeah, there's, you know, even within the community, there was a lot of, um, and not a lot, but there was some disagreement. And so a lot of the criticism though comes from scholars um, and, um, and actually worked with one of his biggest critics when I was uh, on my Fulbright in Nagasaki. Um, uh, well, he, he's a very objective scholar, uh, Takahashi Shinji, and he's published a ton on Nagasaki's post-war history, but um you know, he doesn't, you know, one of his biggest um, criticisms was something I, I sort of say matter-of-factly is that, you know, the occupation, the, the Allied occupation um, censors found his work palatable because it did sort of mm-hmm. exempt the responsibility mm-hmm. of the United States. That's Takahashi's work. Uh, and so I, I, I agree with that. Um, uh, he does go on to criticize him a little more about, um, you know, from like a theological perspective and things, but um, but that was enough to, um, you know, cause a rift between Takahashi, the scholar, and some in the Catholic community, especially um, uh, there, there were some responses from some officials in the Catholic community, published responses. Uh, but most so the, the responses to the criticism, I actually don't talk about this in the book, but a lot of the responses to the criticisms of Nagai Takashi. So the responses from the Catholic community all say the same thing. And that, or in one way or another, and they say that um, you can't criticize them outside of a theological perspective, um, or you can't criticize them from outside the religious context, uh, religious context of uh, Catholicism. Um, uh, and I guess that's sort of trying mm-hmm. to remove historical mm-hmm. context from the discussion. But um, 
but that's sort of the back and forth about his interpretation. That's fascinating. And uh, there's there's so much in, uh, in the book, and I'm afraid we'll have to sort of uh, gloss over some of this. That's all right. The people will just have to buy the book. <laughs> well, of, of course, that goes without saying. But I think we'd be remiss in not talking about the... Uh, the larger community of survivors yeah. that you mentioned. And, and actually, I think maybe um, the best way to, uh, you have really two chapters where you delve into their different, uh, you know, contesting visions uh, of the municipal authorities that you talked about earlier and, uh, you know, coming into conflict with the occupations priorities and so on. But I think the, the case study that you discuss in detail in the last chapter is maybe a great way to symbolize some of that, uh, that sort of contested process. Um, just tell us about the, uh, the controversy over uh, the decision to demolish the Urakami Cathedral in 1958 and what that represents about this community. Yeah, great. So the, in chapter six about the ruins of the Urakami Cathedral um, uh, really came down to um, sort of a battle over the wishes of the survivor activist groups to preserve the ruins as this memento of, of the destruction and the wishes of the Catholic community, which had their own vision of reconstruction, which was complete renewal of their community um, spiritually as well as physically. And so the ruins of this cathedral, um, stood as a literal obstruction to realizing that vision. And so this, in the last chapter, you actually get sort of these two groups pitted against one another, unfortunately. Um, and I should also um, say like, you know, this had this sort of a little bit of tension between the two groups and their visions for, I should, I guess I should say now, like the urban identity of the city, how much does the atomic bombing factor into that identity? Mm their their desires for that were also um separate and that sort of began really with nagai takashi and so so he became the representative voice of his community yes but during the occupation his books were such bestsellers um the number one bestseller in japan in 1948 was one of his books and so he became not only the voice of the catholics but the voice of of nagasaki in general the voice of representative voice of the city's atomic bombing experience, you know, and that wasn't a representative that the survivors and the survivor activists had chosen. Uh, but that's, that sort of becomes what I call like a wall of silence. So this will prevent mm. their voice from really getting outside of the city um, as a group, the, the, the survivor activists as a group. And so when you get to the end of the book with chapter six, I'm showing how this, you know, played out in the 19 late, late 1950s, um, you know, after more than, after about a decade of, you know, these survivor activists trying to work, uh, against these walls of silence. Um, and I discussed the municipal vision of reconstruction as one other wall of silence, but, mm -hmm. um, and so now you have a literal wall of ruin, uh, that they're sort of fighting over. Um, mm -hmm. and, this is where a lot of the groups come together. I mean, by now the occupation is gone, but the other three groups, you know, this is where they all sort of are coming together and um, mm -hmm. where you see the clash of visions and the um, sort of combination of others. And um, um, in the end, of course, and um, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> the, the walls of the cathedral. So the ruins uh, are removed completely. Um, 
and a brand new cathedral is built in its place. And so the survivor activist groups um, are really upset about this because they lost one of their, it, it was actually the symbol, the atomic bombing symbol of the city, um, you know, for 13 years. Um, it was, you know, many people are familiar with the atomic dome or the peace dome in Hiroshima. And so it would often appear alongside that in uh, magazines and newspapers and things like that. And so, and it was a, one of the main sites of atomic tourism in Nagasaki. It was where all the, uh, they, they held ceremonies and things like that. And so um, this was a huge loss for the memory activism of the Hibakusha, the survivors, but it was a huge win for the Catholics um, for a lot of different reasons. One is they're, you know, they're, they're getting to realize their vision of reconstruction, which meant a complete renewal of their landscape. And secondly, they're, they're getting back their uh, center of the community. And so that's what, that sort of that was their lobbying point um, the whole time was that you know we don't have a center of our community anymore and because the cathedral was the center of their community and we need it back and they rejected all sorts of proposals to you know build a brand new cathedral on a separate plot of land the the, the city I, if if I remember correctly even offered them a plot of land to do that or to sort of um, uh, build a new cathedral, incorporating the ruins from the old cathedral, and that was something that was done in Berlin with the Gedicknisskirche. Um, and so, but that, you know, the Catholics just rejected all, mm-hmm. all proposals because they really wanted to remove those ruins. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's such a fascinating case study, and it it really demonstrates uh, the politics of memory that this you know, process of of commemorating. Um, heroic past or a, a tragic past is always uh, embroiled in, in the politics of, of the moment. And it, it brings out all of the different competing interests of, of so many different groups that make it but any urban or rural or, or national community. So uh, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a fascinating case study. And uh, then you go on to, to talk about some of the, the decisions that were made even after the demolition of and the rebuilding of the cathedral. Um, the ways in which the uh, the commemoration in Nasagi, Nagasaki uh, that maybe some of our uh, listeners might be familiar with, you know, the famous statue uh, that's uh, in the right. Peace Park there, how that still doesn't quite uh, meet the, um, the, doesn't rise to the standards of, of some of the memory activists that you talk about in those last two chapters. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, it was the way that the municipal government continued to choose to commemorate the atomic bombing was always insufficient from the perspective of the survivor activists. And the, the statue that you mentioned is just one, one example, and I'll mention others in a second, but so in 1955, they installed a statue for tens of millions of yen um, at a time when a lot of the survivors are living in poverty. They can't pay for their medical costs. So one, they see it as a waste of municipal funds that could have been used to improve their lifestyles or their standard of, uh, standards of living. And two, it, and yeah, anybody can just go Google the um, um, the Nagasaki statue, and uh, this will probably come up. It's the giant. Now he's green, <laughs> um, but it, and he's like pointing to the sky and then pointing flat out um, mm-hmm. to the to his left, I guess. Um, um, and it's. It, like the biggest criticism in terms of describing the statue that the survivors had was that it just, it doesn't capture the trauma of the atomic bombings. But like, what is he doing? I mean, mm-hmm. there is an explanation for why, why he is pointing and things like that, but uh, like he's pointing to the sky for the atomic bombing and his other hand is pointing the way to peace. But, um, 
the atomic bombing survivors just hated it. Uh, mm. But it becomes the center of commemoration to this day. And this is, st- you know, they still hold the annual commemorations right in front of that statue to this day. And I guess that's another aspect of it is the annual commemorations mm. uh, are often a point of contention between the survivor activists uh, and the municipal officials um, pretty much ever since they uh, began officially in 1948 um, and into the present. But in 1947, for example, the municipal officials decided not to hold a city sponsored commemoration. And instead they held a, um, a week long trade festival um, uh-huh. to sort of, you know, play up their history of uh, international trade. Um, uh, and, you know, they were asked about it by uh, reporters and they gave all these elusive answers like, um, uh, yeah, Tokyo made us do it or, but they didn't really have any good explanation. And I argue something in the book and that's in chapter one, if mm-hmm. anybody wants to read that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, definitely the way that the city is on the official level, the municipal officials have chosen to commemorate the atomic bombing is constantly uh, a point of contention. So. Mm, yeah. Uh, and I think actually you sort of just alluded to the fact that uh, even though the, number of people who have direct memory of uh, the bombing is, is, is dwindling and, you know, getting smaller and smaller. Uh, it's still a, a live issue in Japan. And that's really the way you conclude uh, in, yeah. in the end of in the book. And you, uh, you end with a, I find it a disturbing story about efforts by the city officials in these the last few years to limit the ability of the the hibaksha and, and other activist groups to to continue having a voice and um, yeah. and to sort of um, frame in their own way how they they choose to to commemorate their own past and uh, it's a it's a, a wake-up call to to realize that the way that this uh, discourse is still being uh, manipulated uh, in the present and I wonder uh, it, at the risk of ending on sort of a downer <laughs> note here, yeah. you know, drawing on the insights that you've gained from your research into this subject, how do you think that discourse is likely to develop in the coming years? Yeah, it's a really good question that I, I mean, I, I constantly find myself thinking about it, even though this project has been done for a while. Um, um, I always try to pay attention to the annual um, commemorations to see how it is developing. But because the the survivors do often use, so the survivors generally have a representative uh, that, that's always been an atomic bombing survivor um, give a speech at the annual ceremony on August 9th. And um, they've often used it um, as an opportunity to criticize uh, different administrations. Like recently, they uh, uh, criticized the Abe administration for you know uh, a lot of different reasons. And, and the city officials didn't like that, or at least or that's not how they put it, but um, they, they don't like that. And so they, they've devised a way to try to dampen their voice and eventually they're going to completely eliminate their voice from the commemoration. But they developed this, um, this committee a few or a couple of years ago. Um, I'd have to reread my <laughs> conclusion, but uh, to uh, a, a committee of five people, of, um, two of them were supposed to be survivors, but on the initial committee, I don't think mm. there were any. Uh, I'd have to double check that, but um, to choose a representative out of, and people were supposed to submit applications to say, I want to be a representative to give this speech. And, um, but the fear of course, from the activist groups is that, well, they're being pushed out from the committee to select their own representative. And two, this 
person that will be selected may not speak on behalf of the survivor activists um, um, goals or viewpoints. Uh, and so, and this, but this is happening at the same time, the city officials are again, really pushing this um, international past that we've been talking about and which is the subject of so much of the book. Um, they're doing it again. Um, the current mayor Tawe and I, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the book, but a few years ago um, he did sort of a tour in the U S when he was going um, on his way to the, uh, uh, to the meetings at the UN that they go to every year. Um, but he did this sort of mini tour where they were talking about, you know, Nagasaki's urban identity essentially. And, you know, they start out with all the international history and then only secondly, they eventually get to the atomic bombings, but they're really pushing the urban identity of the city mm. that they've been cultivating really since September 1945 when they began discussing it. But in terms of where I see this going, um, uh, I do keep in contact with a, a very close friend of mine um, who, um, he, well, he's been keeping me updated and he actually used to work for the mayor's office before he retired, but, and, you know, and he's very supportive of the Hibaksha, even if the offices always aren't. And um, so I do pick his brain sometimes. And um, I mean, sad to say, it's not looking good for the um, for the representative voices of the Hibaksha groups going forward. But, uh, yeah, we'll see what yeah, happens. Well, it just demonstrates how the, the historical legacy of World War II continues to uh, remain quite potent in, in East Asia in, in ways that people outside of the region sometimes uh, find it easy to forget about. So our work continues to be cut out for us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Well, uh, yeah. there's there's so uh, much that I, I think we had to uh, really gloss over. And particularly, I would have liked to talk more about the, the various aspects of the memory activism of the, the Hibaksha in the post-war area. Era, but uh, we'll have to leave that rich material for the listeners to go back and and delve into. And I, of course, really uh, encourage them to do so because it's a it's a fascinating study, really immersed in a rich body of of primary sources. And uh, I I think uh, our listeners will, will really enjoy it. Uh, now is the time on the series when we traditionally shift gears and 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 wrap things up here by uh, asking you now that you've uh, finished this this work that really goes back to the beginning of your your studies in in Japan you know what are you working on now oh yeah um, so I'm, I'm working on a couple of things uh, one article and and a new book uh, the article um, kind of grew out of this but it really grew out of a course I teach um, here at Loyola on the atomic bombings um, and it's an article um, that I'm calling Melodies of Memory, Framing Japanese War Narratives in 1950s Film. And it's really a like a film history, film studies piece about, I'm looking at the 1950s and three films in particular, uh, a 1953 film called uh, Hiroshima by Sekigawa Hideo. And then, of course, I'm looking at Godzilla because any excuse to look <laughs> at Godzilla and talk about it. <laughs> Uh, so that's 1954. And then a, a French New Wave film um, that's very famous, uh, mm. Hiroshima Mon Amour by uh, Alan Rene, 1959. Um, I'm just looking at these three films and uh, looking at filmmakers as memory activists. And so filmmakers, directors, producers, actors, of course, uh, uh, music composers, and I'm defining all of them as uh, filmmakers. And I'm looking at how they worked together to 
uh, craft war narratives or support war narratives or um, uh, in the face of uh, like really powerful political interests like U.S.-Japan relations and things like that. Um, and it's, you know, it's, and, and, you know, and depending on how long this article gets, um, I am looking at a lot of other films because these filmmakers aren't restricted to mm-hmm. just these three films. Um, you know, the, the music composer that I'm looking at, um, Ifukubi Akira, uh, he did both Hiroshima and Godzilla, uh, but he also did a lot of other post-war films, a lot of them dealing with uh, the wartime war films. Yeah, that sounds um, like a, a fascinating project. And you mentioned also a, a, a new book project you have in mind. So the new book um, is growing out of a seminar paper I wrote at Columbia about tattooing in Tokugawa, uh, Japan, but I've broadened it um, to look at late Tokugawa through the end of World War II and not just tattooing in Japan, but I'm concerned mostly with um, what I'm calling the peripheries. Oh, I'm not the only person mm. to call them the peripheries, but um, like the people on the peripheries of Japan and the people who eventually become Japanese mm. colonial subjects, um, mm-hmm. the Ainu, um, the, the the people of Okinawa, Taiwan. Um, I eventually want to get into Korea as well, but um, so tentative title is Embodying Empire, Tattoos, Judo, and the Corporeal Experiences of Japanese Subjects, 1799 to 1948. And you'll notice that I <laughs> <in> Judo. <laughs> uh, and that's uh, because what I want to do is, um, you know, there's been plenty written about the influence of the Japanese um, colonial empire on the on the customs of the people in the colonies, uh, you know, forcible um language instruction, history instruction, things like that. But I'm more concerned with like the physical corporeal mm. experience of the people and what, you know, uh, what could be more physical than tattoos and mm. judo. And I, um, so I, I practiced judo um, um, throughout my entire time living in Japan. I, um, uh, it's one of the most physically demanding exercises you can do. Um, and so it, it, and I know from experience it, it affects mm-hmm. your physical body and changes your physical body. And so what I want to look at in this book is how do the physical bodies of the colonial peoples change because of empire? All right. Well, these both sound like great projects and it sounds like you're continuing your tradition of uh, very creative and engaging titles. So, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> we'll be looking you, forward yeah. to seeing uh, more of your work in, in publication soon. Um, I'd just like to thank you again for taking this time to discuss your book with me today. And again, I'd really like to endorse it for the readers. It's a stimulating and uh very thought-provoking read, and I really enjoyed talking about it with you today. Thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with me about the book. All right. Thanks a lot, and take care. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.